Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now, if you're an old burner but have been out of the loop lately, you may be surprised to hear our speaker today being introduced as the CEO of Burning Man. But we'll always know her as Maid Marion. I never had the pleasure of meeting her myself, but I can attest to the fact that at the burn, in the back of our minds, even though we knew that the elusive Larry Harvey was in the camp and had a handle on things somewhere, we also knew that Maid Marion was out and about keeping her eye on us revelers, making sure that we were all safe as her spirit hovered over the city. I guess that's a little dramatic. <laughs> However, the new CEO title comes from the fact that the Burning Man organization has now transposed into a nonprofit, and it needed a CEO. In a moment, you're going to hear the really interesting story of how, of all the original founders of the Burning Man LLC, it was Maid Marion who was elected CEO. Now, during this conversation, you'll also hear John Gilmore mention the fact that you have to have enough juice to make it to a burn. In other words, it not only isn't easy to get to Burning Man, in fact, to do it properly takes a year-long commitment. You have to work to get there, which is one of the reasons that I haven't made the last few burns. <laughs> you know, just getting everything ready takes a lot of work. As you know, the mantra on the playa is leave no trace. That means that everything, as in everything that you bring to Black Rock City, must return home with you. And that includes your gray water and peanut shells. Water that's been used for cleaning or showers can't simply be poured on the ground. You've got to have a way to take it back home with you. Three things that should not be missed during a life on planet Earth are an orgasm, a psychedelic experience, and a week at Burning Man. Hopefully, you'll get to experience all of them more than once because, uh, well, they all have the potential of becoming life-changing experiences. So now let's join Christopher Pezza on the Playa Burning Man as he introduces John Gilmore and Marion Goodell for their open-ended discussion about some of the issues that festival organizers everywhere have to cope with in order to pull off a great experience for their participants. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Palenque Norte Speaker Series. I'm Pez. I'll be your, your host for the week. <laughs> so this next talk is really special. Um, I'd like to welcome Marion Goodell of Burning Man. Marion is the CEO of the Burning Man Project. And um, today, Marion will be interviewed by John Gilmore, who um, is a technologist and entrepreneur who has been speaking. So we'll just get right started. Thank you both so much. Hi. Hi, John. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. So you have a really long history with the Burning Man organization and with Burning Man before it was even organized. Can you can you give us sort of a, you know, the, the 10,000 level over, foot level the overview of Digest your history? The yes. short version. <laughs> I, well, I've been in this role for about a year. Um, I've been uh, part of the organizing group for 18 years and attended as a participant for the first two years, which were 95 and 96. This is my 20th Burning Man. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> Anybody else in the 20-year range? 
No? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> More than 20? We're all class of 20, class of 95, as we say. Um, yeah, that was my first burn. I dated Larry Harvey and found it impossible not to help. And um, the areas that I helped build were like communications and the business and administration um, and technology. Those all fell under me over time. Legal, government relations. And I ran the DPW for about eight years in between. Just gave that up two years ago. So one of the things I, I know from other contexts is that it's a very different experience to attend a festival versus to create a festival. And it sounds like you've gotten to experience both sides of that. I mean, you've gotten to attend it in the beginning and now to put it on. Um, can you still experience <laughs> festivals, you know, with kind of that, that uh, innocent mindset? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> I mean, not, not your own, of not course. Not even other festivals. I find myself looking around, um, giving feedback, or not feedback, but I absorb what I'm looking at. I look at the, the way that they bring people in on the gate. Um, I look at the way that they do their credentialing. I look at the way that the toilets, how often they clean the toilets. Uh, I've been to Glastonbury recently, which, of course, is huge, and it's the biggest one of its type on, in the world. And I actually was very impressed. I look, we look at the way they socialize people, since the, what we, we do here culturally is really um, very successful. So I'm always um, making observations, and I can't help it. Um, I have a, a particular passion for festivals. Um, I really feel like the culture and the way festival culture encourages people to look out for each other, really across the board, except for some... <coughs> that I've not been to, but I hear about in the UK that are really just drunken music. Most of the festivals I've been to or that I'm interested in are the ones um, like ours that really um, encourage community building and um, sharing of knowledge and evolving who we are and really taking time to be with each other. Um, that's there, A day may come where that's what we'll need is the festival culture of the government's um, go sideways, we'll be trusting each other through um, this connection, not um, any government entity. Globally, this is my feeling. Yeah. So I look at all the festivals, I observe them for that particular purpose. I'm part of a network, <laughs> as we all are. But um, yeah, bringing people together and looking out for them um, in any kind of way is very exciting and empowering. So I feel a duty um, to be a festival producer as I am right now. And we don't call Burning Man a festival. If anybody says Marion called it a festival, <coughs> we don't. But um, but I, I fit in that genre. So Burning Man as sort of a cultural phenomenon has has definitely impacted the mass culture, right? In what ways do you see you or the organizing group or the, the Burning Man culture has been successful in transmitting ideas out into the bigger culture and in what ways do you think you know, we fell down at that and we you know there's more that we need to do to get some of our core concepts out into the universe? Well, that's really um, the intention now of the Burning Man Project, the nonprofit that we just started a couple of years ago. Um, 
the event naturally seems to uh, inspire people to take what we've experienced here and either reproduce it or else find others that are adapted to it and engage with it. Um, we've been nurturing, the organization's been nurturing um, what we call the regional network. Um, at this point, has about 230 people around the world in a 150 locations. I think we've got almost all the continents at this point. Um, and we're here to nurture the interest. Um, I think as individuals, what's interesting for us is that we've, we all have, um, when you're first new to Burning Man, sometimes you really get off on the experience of uh, the constant stimulus and engagement and, and the celebration and the party. And, there, and people get confused into what all the layers are that actually are the inspiring portion, and they come home and they might think that it's just um, having a party and hanging out, um, but that there are the layers in which we're architecting this, including they include living together, they include consciousness towards each other, um, they include the logos. I mean, the ten principles are just a starting point. So um, I think the ways in which we could improve on that, all of us, would be to really um, take a deeper look at what it is that that we all get from this experience here. And it's funny, I keep assuming that, and I find it, I get disappointed, but I think we can all change this. One of the things that happens at Burning Man is you're unafraid. You look at people in the eye, you smile at them a lot more often than you normally would. And I think that's a really easy starting point out in the world. And um, also being really kind to each other. Like here, there's no point in being bitter at your neighbor. Sometimes people are, but you might as well, if they're, if they're camped next to you, you're going to have to figure that shit out. <clears throat> and when we're in San Francisco, I heard an argument re- someone had recently about something, and there was cursing, and there was mean emails. And I thought, that's so not like Burning Man. And I really wish people would take those moments that they have where they're here in the middle of the street or they're having a noise complaint or they're unhappy with the behavior of someone. And here you sort of, you take a deep breath and you you step back and you reapproach it. And those are really simple things. I don't think we need 10 principles out in the world to just sort of incorporate what we get here and what we can project out. And that's a starting point. Uh, I think that'll go a long way. And then after that, we can create more momentum. We can we can look at Burning Man as being uh, its own cultural meme that we can blend with others. I don't think Burning Man is the, the solution. I think that we are a really powerful gravitational force. Um, and mixed with other cultures and other groups, um, that's what's powerful. So I just think, you know, that you asked me what's, what we're missing and what we're doing well. I think we're doing well just actually creating the conversation about what Burning Man. That's been huge. And look, the population and the tickets and the way the regionals are growing, we're doing that part right. Right. But in San Francisco, it's still a very NIMBY environment and, you know, where people are like, oh, I support you, but don't do that in, you know, on my street. You know, it, it hasn't made it back into that part of the culture, even in the nearby cities. Agreed. Well, and I think there's some weird irony behind the fact that we're out, born out of San Francisco, and San Francisco is such a, you know, evolved city, but um, it's got a lot of attitude in that regard. And so, burners in Chicago, at times, I see them treating each other better than burners in San Francisco, you know, or in Berlin. The further away we seem to get from San Francisco, the more <laughs> intent a burner might have because they're not in such a 
so to speak, target-rich environment where the burners are sort of blasé about what's really valuable about the experience. And so in El Paso, Texas, for instance, you know, and there's 25 burners initially there, and they're they're like this, you know. And they're looking out for others. They're actually actively. In San Francisco, it's sort of like whatever. So... um there are these incredible logistical challenges to putting on this event in the middle of the fucking desert. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. How, you know, what do you see as a, as a medium to long-term path of how do you deal with being at the wrong end of 100 miles of two-lane road? And, you know, how do you make a cultural environment that encapsulates this culture you know, that doesn't cause... I mean, because one of the issues here is you have to work to get here. Mm-hmm. It keeps away the people who don't have enough juice to really want to participate. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do you make a culture that is more inclusive and less forbidding and still has all the attributes you really want in it? That's sort of a complex question, I guess. Um, well, we do have limits here. We're not sure what the limit is, um, but... Yeah, but the traffic, you know, uh, is the most limiting factor right now. Um, that's why we started the car passes to sort of start counting cars and start. I mean, that's a. It was not well received initially, but we had to do something to make everybody sort of conscious of how we get here. And we've doubled the number of people flying in, and we've doubled the number of people on the Burner Express. So that was a that's good news. So we're constantly in a d- dialogue with ourselves about the capacity of the location. <clears throat> the roads are definitely it. Um, the thing that I think is really worth thinking through, and you have to have had these experiences to really understand it, but this is um, a powerful place. It's To be here for eight days or more is incredible. In fact, in my book, to be here about three or days or more is great. Um, anything shorter than that is kind of short. Um, unless you've been here before. If you've done it before and you come in for two days, I feel like you're fine. But if you're a newbie and you come in for two days, I think you're like, not, you're selling it short. Like, yeah. What's the point? Seriously. You're not even acclimatizing. You're yet. not even acclimatizing. Yeah. You're still getting <clears throat> dehydrated. Yeah. Yeah, there's no point. Um, when we look at regional events around the world, we really encourage the ones that are three days or more. We really encourage that. It takes enough time to sort of come into a culture, look around and realize how you're supposed to act and what you're supposed to do. Start doing it and do it enough so that when you leave, you are, your habits are formed. The way that you leave no trace and take care of your trash and the way that you live in immediacy and, and self-reliance. Um, but... Things like Burners Without Borders, I was in Katrina. Burners Without Borders were born out of Katrina. And you wouldn't, we, we didn't know this was going to happen. The organization didn't know. But when Burners left here, um, who was here on site when Katrina hit? Um, and, right, so we were all here on site. I would say it was there was 50,000 or so people here, maybe 49. And everybody heard right away that there was a hurricane hitting New Orleans. And so by the time everybody left, people were leaving money. They were taking Media Mecca. They were leaving donations. And um, some folks from the DPW, a gentleman who had a crane, went down to Biloxi uh, because his girlfriend's father had um, helped build a Buddhist temple that they had taken time to raise money for for several years and it had just been finished like 11 days previous. 
And so it was one spot with one crane, and another burner went down, and Senna said, we're down here. And so we created Katrina at BurningMan.com, and anybody, don't make me cry. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was self-organized. The organization didn't organize it. What we did is we had an email address, and burners could find the other burners. And they did it without any formal leadership, and the leaders showed up, the people with the heavy equipment became the leaders. And the group met each morning. And at one point, they maxed out around 80. But they had well, they had 80 people come and go at different times. And the camp typically had 25 to 40 people. And they used Burning Man values. They used uh, the, the values of leadership. They did not do deep into consensus because they were in the middle of a war zone, so to speak, in a disaster area. And we got emails saying, this is Burning Man. And they had people joining the group who had never been to Burning Man, who then subsequently went to Burning Man. And they didn't put 10 principles up on the wall. They just used what you would use to get a theme camp going. They made sure to take care of everybody. They orientated everybody. And every day, the group went out and, and took away detritus from the poorest people in this small town outside of Biloxi. After they were at the temple, they moved to this tiny town. And in the on Wednesday on Friday on Saturday evenings they took the day off and they took the detritus and they made art and they taught the people in this little town how to make art and they used drills and they used the headboards and they had frames from picture frames and turn things that would turn when the heat they heated up and so they worked hard they did community service they engaged in their own camp. They taught others, and then they celebrated by burning things, and they invited the town on Saturday nights, and they'd have a potluck. Nobody told them to do this. Nobody had a list. We just did it as we would do it if we were here. And that's what gets me choked up about how can we make this happen here? We can find those opportunities outside of Black Rock City and generate those experiences and invite other people into them. That one lasted for five months, and it had one Burning Man staff member there that after a while he said, I'm willing to stay five months if you'll kick me a couple of grand so that I can help take care of everything here, and we did. And so I feel like that's a great starting point. Burners Without Borders type work is, a, is, is different from going out and celebrating, but it is real community work where you can actually, by doing, help people see what it is that we are and who we are. Sorry, that was long, but that was one of my favorites. There's a film called Burn on the Bayou. You can sometimes find it, um, but Burn on the Bayou tells the story. Yeah, I also knew people from the Rainbow Gathering who had the same reaction, who like picked up their mobile, we can set up, you know, how to live and make food and be sanitary and do whatever in any environment and they brought it to New Orleans and they fed people and they helped the cleanup and so yeah it's great to see the sort of quote unquote alternative cultures applying those skills to show the mass culture what can be done yeah, the biggest problem I think Burning Man has is the translating to what people think is Burning Man into what really is Burning Man. If you've ever tried to tell someone you've been to Burning Man and they have, they say drugs and nudity usually is what everybody says. 
Um, and that's the biggest job we all have is the storytelling around what really the experience is like. I mean, that's all your questions are touching on. How do we tell a story? How do we do it? How do we be? So, so what does Burning Man want to be for the next 20 years? Right? What, uh, what's the vision? Well, I think, I think personally, I think the opportunities right now are fabulous. I think, um, the vision is sort of a, it's sort of a hundred year plan at the moment. Uh, yeah. And we're 26 years or 27 years into it. Excuse me. Um, what the organization is doing is trying to, um, we're leveling up a couple of things. This is, this is what we're doing internally. One is we're trying to improve our storytelling. When people say, what's the Burning Man project? Black Rock City and Burning Man is one thing. In fact, it's hard enough to describe. But if we're going to keep trying to generate the culture, we have to internally decide how we're going to talk about it. The other thing that we're doing is we're trying to network all of you together to each other in a way not that's not not Facebook. <laughs> um, and it used to be, uh, what was before Facebook? Uh, MySpace. MySpace. And then there was the one, a tribe. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we would, we have organizations that come to us all the time, organizations that were founded and started by burners. We, some of them are burner based, some are based on other commercial endeavors. And people want to find each other. People want to find the Burning Man businesses. People want to find the burners. People want to find the nonprofits started by burners. Um, it's a complicated story, but what we're trying to do is be the network node for that connectivity and facilitate it. And that's not easy. It, we don't really imagine ourselves being a data-hungry government entity. We'd more like to be a pass-through facilitation machine, so to speak. Right. But, you know, as part of that process, you've introduced this whole burner profile thing where, you know, it's like your Facebook login for Burning Man. Yeah, I know you have strong feelings on that, John. <laughs> well, but, you know, how has that helped? Has that actually improved communication among burners, or is it just a, sort not, of an easier not way? Not yet. We haven't actually started the next level of work, which is connecting everybody together. Um, you know, ideally, the purpose would be if you're if you're part of a theme camp. So, so think about it. Even think about it in many different layers. The most simple challenge is coming to Burning Man, and at some point, we'd like to be able to facilitate. Old timers, mid-term timers, newbies, whatever you want to call all of us. We have different you know, levels of experience at Burning Man. And at some point, we're going to have to filter people in by how they participate. We already do that. We sell 15,000 tickets directly to theme camps as, in their own pre-sale. Um, we sell special tickets to staff members. You have to be a staff member to have a, a specially purchased ticket. We sell 30 maybe 39 plus 6, something like that, I don't know, 40-some thousand without any filter. Um, we're gonna, that's, that number has to change because it gets really crazy to have art projects and theme camps that are units. If you can imagine this camp that's done this beautiful work here, if they had to go into a lottery system like we had in 2012 and they couldn't get the guy that knows how to do the rigging to come, now what do you do? They've got no tent. We've got John Gilmore and a bunch of great people here, but no tent. So the organization really intends to help all of the most dedicated 
aspects of what we do here get here. And I use very broad words because there are different ways to look at that. There's volunteers and there's theme camps and there's art projects and there's a lot of other areas. And we think that the, one of the ways to do that is going to be for people to opt in their their engagement. So if I want to say that I've been part of this camp and I was part of the DBW, that along the way will give me some sort of credit for my participation. How that maps out then to ticket purchases, is we're trying to do this as we go. We're trying to take advice from people. We are not turning this on overnight. Um, I personally like geography as a criteria. Like I favor anybody that, from overseas who emails me and says that they've already bought their RV and they already have their flights and they and they need to get to Burning Man, and I try to figure out how to get them there. Um, I, I prefer Miami, Florida over San Francisco at this point. <laughs> hey, you're one of my favorite people even. <laughs> Bram, well, I went to Miami. I went. Bram is a perfect example. I went to Miami two days after our lottery went nuts in 2012. I'd never been to Miami before. He created this lovely evening for me and another girl, Megan, to meet 100 burners in Miami. We were like, holy shit. There's 100 people here. It turns out there were more. But that's just the 100 that showed up. And they came so close to my face, and they told me how they'd had art projects previously. They were ready to cross the country. And I realized how badly I wanted more people from the further, again, the further away we get from the epicenter. I love San Francisco. I love the West Coast. But if we're going to change the world and we're going to affect people, I, wanna, I want people from Des Moines. I want people from Miami. I want people from South America. And not just the San Francisco network. Sorry, I lost my train of thought, but Bram has changed the way I was looking at geography. Thank you, Bram. Yeah, I had a similar issue. I was going to the Chaos Computer Congress in Berlin, and they had the same kind of problem where they maxed out the capacity of where they were holding the thing. And they said, well, you know, it's first come, first serve, right? You show up, you buy your ticket at the door. And, and when the tickets are gone, they're gone. And I'm like, I'm flying in from San Francisco to spend a week in a foreign country, and I don't know if I'll get a ticket or not. I mean, this is insane. Yep. You know. And they had to do things about that, and Burning Man has had to do things about it. And, of course, I'm sure they're still in flux. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we're, it's, it really is hard because, actually, whether you believe it or not, there's more staff members in the Burning Man organization that would rather not be holding people's data than, than want to hold people's data. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really want to find ourselves with great intention and then end up being sort of the enemy um, at all. And thank God we are friends with you because you do give us feedback along the way, which has been great, actually. John Gilmore gave us some feedback on our ticket. Um, you and the EFF, both, yeah. yeah. And we modified it. Yes, thank yep. you nice to have conversation. Yep, that's what we're here for. And that's why the burner profile, I'm very cautious about answering the questions because I don't have all the answers. I just know that when someone in Austin, Texas, okay, or Miami has also done an art project or done a theme camp in Texas for maybe five years and they've contributed to the Texas contingent for Burning Man and they want to come to Black Rock City for the first time, I sure as hell want to help them get here. But without us figuring how to manage either the data through the, because the relationships are too big for us to manage in our own heads, I don't know how else we're going to do it. Maybe we need to grow the Bay Area regional that's not Burning Man 
right? And let that crowd go to that, and that'll leave more, more room here for the rest of the world. There you go. That's one way to do it. <laughs> Are you a Texas person? Is that why you were going like this? Yeah. Austin. See, Austin Flipside. And Austin Flipside was the first large event outside of Black Rock City, 2,500 people. Now it's been going up. And again, perfect example, you've got tons of people that actually, if I go visit Austin, I say, have you been to Burning Man? And they say, yes. And you're like, oh, when did you go? And they said, oh, I've been to Flipside. I haven't been to Black Rock City. <laughs> and I want people to see Burning Man as really a state of mind in their heart. That You can be at Burning Man in New Zealand, and you can be at Burning Man in Miami, and you can be at, in Austin, Texas. But I also want to give people a chance to plug into this epicenter, because you know, it, it's the, this is like zzz. And you want to take it back with you. And then we can replicate it even better. I mean, we can cross-pollinate. And that's the burner profile, hopefully, with John's guidance. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's talk about the finances of Burning Man. It's, uh, I mean, it's become a big organization and it employs a whole bunch of staff. It's, it's what, millions of dollars going in and out every year. Um, and now it's all going through a nonprofit too. So there's supposedly, you know, much more transparency in nonprofits than in for profits. How is that working out? Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I think it's working out great. I mean, I, it's intense. Um, I helped start the first LLC. We started the first LLC in 1997. We chose to start an LLC because it was easy and it was fast and it was nimble and we could make our own decisions. Um, at the time, it was Harley and Larry and Will and Crimson and myself and Michael Michael. And we needed to be paid. We were the only staff members initially. And in order to be paid and run your organization, you can't, you have to have other disinterested board members for a nonprofit. And so we were just like, this is the way we're going to do it, and we're going to take it as far as we, we could go. And none of us thought we'd get to this point. And it was, it's been great. It's been fabulous having an LLC. However, along the way, we were treating it with principles like the nonprofit, and then the culture itself really is more for the public good. And it's been challenging to take the LLC and make it a subsidiary of the new nonprofit. And then to also we've taken the BlackRock Arts Foundation and made a subsidiary of the nonprofit. So now I have an ecosystem, a financial ecosystem, an arts nonprofit and an LLC all feeding into this major nonprofit. And at the end of this year, it will be our first tax year where Burning Man Project has access to and transparency to, for about $30 million. And that will be interesting. Yeah, it's not going to be like the chart of accounts are revealed, but um, certainly the salaries of everybody over a hundred thousand dollars gets revealed, and it makes us all a little nervous. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're going to be open to criticism. Everybody's going to have something to say about what, what our salaries are. Well, you've been open to criticism for decades, though. So. Well, it's hard. It gets a little personal. That's the. That's my only personal concern. Is. Uh, how can you really explain to someone what you're doing? Um, we do have almost 80 employees, and we have an office in San Francisco. We have 25,000 square feet. We have property we own here in Nevada. And sometimes when people kind of find it hard to believe, and isn't that a little excessive, and what is that money spent on, and how, who, who are the employees? What, what, which, what roles do they have? 
um, I, I, it, it'll be challenging. The nonprofit, I think, will open up new questions. But we're, I mean, we're here to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. I'm happy that we're taking this path. Yeah. Also, the LLC members have have given up money in the process, right? Because you guys, as a matter of law, physically owned, you know, Burning Man, the event, the cash flow, all of that, and you donated it to the nonprofit. Right, so the nonprofit, you know, that all now flows through the nonprofit, and that has public accounting. But that was kind of your retirement, right? What, what, how, how are you? Re- I guess you're not retiring, so. <laughs> no, I'm still quite here. <laughs> so, um, I guess how was was that part of the transition from the LLC? Was how do we deal with the financial impact on the six LLC members? Or was, what were the sticking points in making that transformation? Well, that's why it took us quite a few years to sort of map that out. Um, there, of the six of us, we each have a different role going into the future. Um, we didn't have to, we'd had to, we had to negotiate with the nonprofit um, to make sure that we had some ongoing things uh, taken care of. Um, none of which can be guaranteed to any of us because it's a nonprofit, but things of which we have, we all have a three year contract right now for employment, um, which is renewable within the nonprofit, you know, can non renew anybody's contract. Um, and yeah, there are the others. I'm 51. Um, the rest, Harley's 51, and the rest of them are in their 60s. Michael Michael, I believe, will be, she, he might be 69 at this point. So they're all, you know, retirement age, but nobody really wants to stop doing this. Yeah, <clears throat> I know. So we had to internally, the nonprofit also changed the way in which we um, negotiated with each other our roles. We now have more, but that's how the CEO role came up. You know, you, you if you Googled Marion and CEO right now, you wouldn't find much on the Internet because we didn't really release it. Um, it we just sort of started talking about it kind of like this. Um, part of what happened was the change in going from an LLC to a nonprofit. The six LLC members made most of our decisions in a sort of a consensus fashion, most of them. But money, hiring, high-risk government relations, we did it all together. Rarely did we divide it up. But the nonprofit structure and $30 million and 80 employees, you know, it, it, it's more complex with the subsidiaries. And the rest of them decided that they didn't want to do it. <laughs> no. so, so And it was I got like- it. Yeah, six people in line and five of them backed away. Yeah, pretty much. That's almost exactly how it went. We had a facilitator one day with us, six of us about the future, and he said, well, you guys have quite an ambitious list of things you'd like to do. Have you thought about how to get this done? And um, he said, we'll take a break for lunch now. And he came over to me, and he said, I think that you're up next. And um, that's, that's kind of the way it went down. Um, but I feel like I was, you know, in training for it. So I feel like what I need to do now is act like the role that I believe I was meant to do, which is to, after 15 years of being with the organization, 18 years, but 15 years of it being a really solid company organization, um, I'm, I'm going to help go through the phase that we're going to go through now. We're more visible. We're making it real. We're not a for-profit we have a lot of, you know, responsibility to the public, and um, it's a it's quite a mindset change. And then my co-founders, they're they report to me, which is weird. So we don't talk about it like that. 
Well, and they're my advisors, so I'm, I, I actually would, I'm, I'm here by the grace of their uh, faith. Um, so we're going through all these things in order to try and transition ourselves from an ownership-based collective almost uh, to a nonprofit. Well, and you also have had to deal with succession, like mm-hmm. with half of the members or more being at retirement age. Yep. You know, who's going to step up and keep the thing going? Right. And they, right. do you have a process now for, like, people who want to be on that career path to be able to try it out and take bits of responsibility and figure out are they up for the job and can they do it? Yes, we do. Um, the guy running the event right now is a guy named Charlie Dolman. We brought him in two years ago. He's British. Uh, he was uh, running or being part of a group running something called the Secret Garden Party. That was the first move we made. Harley uh, was running the event, um, and I was doing the setup with the DPW. Because of Charlie, we've now been able to offload that. Um, we've got a woman who is the managing director for the nonprofit. Um, it's kind of scary. I mean, this is our thing, you know. It's like it's hard, talking about it gets kind of intense, you know. If you talk about succession plan, it's one thing if you own a company and you're going to sell it and you, that's your succession. And that's not the way it's going to work with us. Um, so it's very interesting now because some of the founders are in very invested in certain projects and certain aspects. And so I encourage the staff to get their advice. You know, They might not have the decision-making responsibility, but get the advice of others. Um, we're doing it very Burning Man-like. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, internally, absolutely. I think I personally love giving people more responsibility, and I love to communicate the options and have them pick it up. And so that's what we're doing across the board, mm. making open, making more openings for leadership. I know in my own last company, I was one of three co-founders, and we got it to maybe twenty or twenty-five people before we had to hire in middle management and things like this, and. What we learned was, even when they, I mean, it was a weird company, right? We, we wrote software, gave it away, and made money on support. Yeah. And when we would bring in experienced managers from other companies, they would come in with the proprietary mindset, like, we have to lock this all up, we can't give it away. Even the ones who, like, got it in the interviews and really wanted to be part of it, all their reflexes were to do the wrong thing. And so we had to kind of micromanage them for six or eight months. Absolutely. Right? So that, you know, we gave them the responsibility, but we reserved the right to say, well, actually, no, let's do it this way, until they absorbed the culture, right, and that they'd start making the same sort of decisions that that we had made in the culture. That's a great example of what we've had to do in our organization. So we've been able to hire some really, really interesting people. In the past, we were... We would take volunteers that would work so hard, we would hire them to do things, and then people would sort of move along. And then we started creating job descriptions. That was a number of years ago. And a lot of that <clears throat> would sort of mm, entry level or just above entry level. Now we've actually had to hire at higher levels, and that's been fascinating. And the hardest part of that was been, despite what people think about how we create rules at Burning Man, we actually prefer not to create rules until they're really necessary. So you get someone from the outside that comes in and they're like all excited about how you do administration and culture in companies and they're like, well, we're going to do this and we're going to set our meetings like this and we're going to do our action items like this and and we're, we are in a, if it's not broken, don't fix it 
to a point. Like we we like to see ahead. We like to solve problems before we see them. But it's really if you're from an outside and you're all you're all like this is how we're going to do it. And I've I've been doing this for so long. We're usually in a mode of trying to explain why we haven't gone there yet. That we really prefer to have our human nature, organizational theory. Um, and you know, group dynamics come to the surface and engage people, whether it's here or in our office, then just start doing things in ways that look like they're more functional for other cultures, exactly like what you're saying. And it's acculturating those leaders. Yeah, you want the expertise, but at the same time, you don't want the cultural baggage that they came in with. You want your own cultural baggage. Yep. <laughs> Um, do people in the audience have questions for Marion? Is there any advantage to purchasing your own giant piece of property? And I'm sure you've thought of it. Yes. And is it possible? <sighs> well, we've gone through this before. Um, this question comes up pretty annually. The answer is pretty stable in that... Um, the federal government is, in this case, for this land, mandated for public use. And we're, we get to engage, fortunately, with administrators who have, have to fill that mandate. Um, when we go to private land, which we did in 1997, we were on private land, Washoe County, over um, the Wallapai Flat. That's, those are elected officials. Those are county commissioners. Those are sheriffs that are elected. And your relationship can change when the elected officials change. And we just had that with Pershing County. Um, if anybody saw that we had sued Pershing County last August. Um, for trying to zone you out of existence. To, for something. trying to zone us out of existence. So people that we had been working well with for seven years, we had a written agreement on how we were going to pay them an annual fee. Um, new elected officials, and we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars responding and doing that suit. We had a bunch of volunteer attorneys, but our time from the volunteer attorneys and another attorney that wasn't volunteer and travel time and work, etc., was, I think we believe it was $250,000 because there was a turnover in election in Pershing County. So that's the way it is on private land. Now, that being said, Pershing, or um, Fly Hot Springs is a piece of land that's nearby that we have had the event on once and we imagine that we could be doing smaller events that are easier to uh, fulfill requirements, county requirements for. Um, we don't you guys have no idea how hard we work so that there aren't trash cans here. Like the dumpsters are brought up every time we go yeah, thank you. Um, every time we go to these cooperator meetings, there's something, there's a new person in the health department there, and the guy raises his hand and says, I'd like to see this many cubic dumpsters there, and we just fall off over our chairs, and we have to convince them. And that's what a county does. And we have two regional events that basically nearly got shut down because county officials for the, for, in Arizona, for 800 people, wanted dumpsters. 800 people can definitely take away their own trash. Easy peasy. So that's why, and they were on private land. The sheriff is the one who got mad and also refused to let them have children 10 days before the event. Private land. Public officials are held to a different standard by the public than a government administrator who's mandated to allow us to recreate. 
Um, what's Burning Man's plan for the future of sustainability? Because obviously there's a lot of, there's an enormous amount of individual responsibility from participants, you know, for what we choose to bring in, how we select the items that we bring in, and where they come from. But as Burning, Burning Man is a whole organization, because it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of waste that's created. There's a lot of fumes and a lot of carbon that's released from the burning. Um, are you under any criticism for that? And also, is there a plan for the future um, with a lot more awareness coming in about our, you know, our practices and how they affect the environment? We get feedback, yeah. Um, it's not the number one feedback we get. I don't know how to answer that really accurately, except that it's a, it's a constant dialogue internally. Um, it's a difficult conversation for us to have. People have to drive and fly here from all over the world. Um, we're definitely burning a bunch of stuff. Um, I, I, I like to lean into the fact that we, the work that we do with Leave No Trace, like psychologically and philosophically, is, is huge. And that when you leave Burning Man and you had to take your cardboard, you know, I used to take my cardboard cereal and leave it back in the Bay Area and I would bring the wax bag, you know. Um, and then when I got home, I could never, I used to smoke, I could never ever in my life and still to this day can't put a cigarette butt out on the ground. If I'm with someone who does it in San Francisco, I pick up their cigarette butt. That's leave no trace. There was nothing else that did that. Nobody was going to put me in trouble. It's a habit. I see someone's zip tie. I was walking through a camp yesterday. I saw a zip tie on the ground. I picked up the zip tie. They were all looking at me. They were kind of embarrassed. It's a natural response. That to me is what I think is the best that we have to offer in that regard. And then to encourage all of you guys that have a strong opinion on that to actually do the educating of each other and us in return. I didn't, you know, when we started really turning this into a large festival or an event, um, I think the sustainability conversation wasn't as prominent as it is now. And maybe we would have done some things differently. Um, we're in a mode at the moment, and we're definitely actively taking under consideration each time we purchase wood, where's the wood from. Um, the purchasing people do look at that. Um, we try to, like, you look at sustainability for people or means different things. Uh, we prefer to buy in Reno, for instance. We don't truck our wood over the mountains. We try to buy everything we can in Reno to help the community here. But sometimes we need non-chemically treated wood. So then it gets shipped from Canada and Torino. So there is a conversation going on. We don't talk about it a lot, but I could honestly tell you we've talked about composting toilets and experimenting with those. Um, so we're, we take feedback. When people have a good idea to help us, we're absolutely we're taking it in. Annie? Hi, Annie. Hi, Marion. Thank you for all your work over all these years. Thank you for your support. I have a question about data. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm a former Burning Man volunteer, and I had a difference of opinion, disagreement, with uh, a Burning Man volunteer crew that I was part of. And uh, so I uh, appealed to the Burning Man HR department, as was done, and uh, they told me that they were making decisions about me based on a file of information about me that I was not permitted to see. And um, other people have had a similar experience because I've heard from them. And, um, you know, businesses and nonprofits are not legally obliged to release information about their volunteers. Um, but because we're talking about Burning Man, 
I'm curious as to whether Burning Man is prepared to uh, take another level of transparency and release information to volunteer burners that they collect about those volunteers that could be cited in a disagreement such as this. I've never had that question asked exactly like that. I think it's an interesting conversation, and it's a really interesting question. Um, as I was listening to you, I started imagining what ways in which that would be possible. Um, it was hard; it's hard enough to get people to even get both sides of the story these days. Um, but I can imagine; I can start; I can start imagining whether that would be possible um, and how. It's difficult. But I can see how your experience would be really have been quite painful not to really understand what is it, what it, what is it I'm, where it, what's the scope of what's there, um, and then depend on someone else to moderate and mediate the reality and what's real, what isn't real. Um, I, I I know a little bit about your situation, and um, I think it's okay to keep asking those questions of us. Um, I ask them too when those things come up and people make it difficult for someone else to continue their volunteer tenure. One of my biggest questions is, have you gotten all sides of the story? Do you trust what those are? You know, What dialogue have you given to the individual? And, and whether or not, you, I'm not really talking about your situation, I'm really talking about it as a whole, particularly very active, very engaged, very visible volunteers. I have a follow-up question to my campmate in Reverbia. Um, obviously, Burning Man has a huge carbon footprint, and I was wondering if you have any plans to abstract the the best things of Burning Man that are separate from all the energy use and uh, supply some sort of support structure that it would help communities adopt the best principles of Burning Man in a, uh, a more uh, green or earth-friendly manner. I'm not quite sure what you're asking. I mean, it sort of sounds like like Burning Man in a box kind of thing, like a container full of values. Uh, I don't know. I mean, is there a way to take what we're learning from Burning Man uh, and abstract it from all the fuel that's burned to get here and other events? And like you were, you said something similar when you said, "Well, if all the governments fail, then we're going to have to rely on each other." So, if communities evolve that had uh, burner values and um, then they would be in a better position to do that, wouldn't they? I guess what... Apocalyptic? Well, I, I'll tell you then, that's part of what the Burning Man... Pro- I mean, you asked, you started asking about the fuel. I mean, I think you've got a... There's a couple different answers. I'll just give the short one, which is we're constantly asked by leaders of art projects and by people that are part of theme camps, often sometimes just small ones, like 50 people, um, questions about volunteerism and about leadership um, and burnout and how to create community. Um, there's way more questions, but those are just the ones that are easy for me to write at the moment. Um, and like I talked about Burners Without Borders, all of what we're doing is applicable elsewhere. Um, we didn't have the time or the bandwidth to actually be engaging in that conversation until now, which was, that's why we started the Burning Man Project. We used to just the cycle and the 35 of us doing the event. The more people needed the, what you're asking for, the more we were, you know, parsing that off. 
and that's an, we have an education program we're really into developing at the moment, which would be free, you know, videos about um, things that are being already talked about or thing content will create, um, and pointing people towards books, pointing people towards other groups that have done things successfully. Again, Austin being a good example, when we had other regionals that wanted to know how to create an LLC, how to run an event, we kept pointing them to the people in Austin. And that's part of the network. Network people together, create an information, uh, an education system. We're in our infancy. That's why it's a 100-year plan. Uh, We're we're about to run out of time, aren't we? Yeah. Do we have two more questions? Uh, so you, there was a great deal of discussion about culture and the proli- and Burning Man's development of their culture and, and also how it proliferates around the world and the connection and network that you're building amongst people. Uh, my question is a little bit about how that's extending into personal problems and issues that the communities are facing, such as the events that happened in Utah and uh, recently in our own culture in, in Austin, how people are dealing with and tackling their own deals with like suicide and personal issues of, with each other and very innately ingrained in the culture. And it, as this proliferation is, is moving forward in your 100-year plan, how do you see uh, Burning Man being a part of that or, or what are your thoughts on that, you know? Yeah, the other the um, the areas that regionals are having trouble with one is sexual assault. Actually, that's one of the biggest problems. And then um, related to it is not that it, sexual assault is a problem, but what does a small community do when they have a sexual predator or they're not sure? And it's about asking all the questions too. I've seen enough of those situations where e- either person can point to the other, and you need to get all the, the, the story straight. And removing somebody from the community or not having them part of it without really going through the right process is painful and sometimes fucked up. And our organization helps the regionals actually moderate, particularly around their leadership. Um, but we're also helping the regionals get together once a year. It's called the Global Leadership Conference, and there's about 300 of them. Not just the identified leaders, but they can also invite other leaders. And we're helping them have the conversation with each other. Because I don't actually know all the answers to that. And again, just like the woman asking me about sustainability, some of what you all are doing in the world, we're learning from, and we'd rather you tell us what you think. So in the case of the suicide is the other one. Um, there is, it, by some people perceive that there are there's a little bit more suicide than they'd like to see from the burner creative types. And that's a conversation that people should have about what it looks like and what the solution is. Um, and again, the, 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 if you're going to be radically inclusive, where do you draw the line on that for other things? And I, I'm here to help facilitate those conversations. I don't have all the answers. Last question. Here we go. Um, my question is about the size. Your nails are beautiful, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> for Barbie camp. Barbie Death Camp? Yeah, Barbie Death Camp. Yeah. That's where I got them. Everybody can go there. Beautiful blue. Thank you. <laughs> Um, uh, you, the plan for the next 20 years is beautiful, but uh, the ticketing system changes, so a little bit spooky. Now, uh, do you think that the number of allowed participants will increase in the future or will be capped at this current number? We're trying to increase the number. Um, we have a five-year permit for 70000 and we are, I think we're at the third year. So we have 2015 and 2016 before we can grow. But we're in the process of trying to figure out how we can modify that permit. Modifying it, again, costs money and time and consultants and, you know, everything else. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I could. We got to solve the traffic problem first, um, and we have to. You guys have to decide what's tolerable to be in line for. Four hours seems to be three to four hours seems to be tolerable. After that, it gets really people get really pretty pissy. So um, I, I think we could have. I think we could have a hundred thousand people and still be culturally really rich. I mean, I was at Glastonbury. There's two hundred thousand people there, and it's fun. Not Burning Man, but it's fun. So uh, we can't do that on this site. We'll never have 200,000 people on this site ever, 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 ever. But what's the difference between between 70 and, and 100,000? I don't know. But we want to grow. We really do. Yeah. I, I, thank I you so much question for, for you guys. <laughs> did, did you have a question, Pez? It's, it's kind of a funny one. So I've heard this rumor rocking around that next year's theme is breakfast. That's funny. And I wanted... Yeah, you to comment. Larry Larry Harvey comes up with the theme, not me. Um, I do know what he's thinking about. Um, we used to tell him not to talk about it while we're still producing the event, and he does it anyway. So I overheard it, and it sounds kind of cool. It is definitely not breakfast. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, you, everybody, for being here. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And if you are curious to know what the 2015 theme actually is, then I suggest that you surf on over to burningman.org, which has uh, been beautifully remodeled, I should add. And once you're there, I'm sure that you're going to learn all kinds of interesting new things about the event, and you're going to love the possibilities raised by this year's theme, I think. It has the potential to be Larry Harvey's best theme yet. I was also pleased to hear Marianne say that she too believes that the worldwide festival vibe is one of the best hopes for our species to make it through this century. If you've watched the video interview that I gave and is titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, you may remember that the last thing that I said in the interview was, I personally believe that the worldwide dance community is the single greatest hope for our species. And I still believe that. If you've ever been to Burning Man or any of the other great festivals, you already know this yourself. And if you're part of that scene, well, thank you. You're dancing for us all. In the early part of their conversation, uh, Marion talked about the 2012 ticket fiasco. And I have to admit that it brought back my only bad memories about Burning Man. And <laughs> actually is about not getting to Burning Man. As early as September of 2011, a few of us got together to organize a theme camp to host the Planque Norte lectures for the 2012 burn. A week before the ticket lottery, one of our guys even went to Thailand to order the construction of several domes that we planned to use for the event. And most of our finances for the camp were already worked out and we were all really excited about going to the 2012 burn. Then came the day of the lottery, and out of our 60 or so people, only four got a ticket. And even though the Burning Man organization more or less worked things out over the next several months, by the time that they did so, our group had already disbanded. Fortunately, uh, Bruce Damer, Tom Riddell, and Christopher Pezza didn't give up. They joined Camp Soft Landing, and there they hosted the Planque Norte lectures that year. Now, I have to own up to being one of the discouraged ones. Having invested a lot of time leading up to the lottery and seeing almost everyone in our camp decide to skip the burn that year, I did the same thing. And in case you're wondering, yes, I was really, really pissed off at the way the ticket sales were handled. 
Fortunately, Bruce and Tom and Pez are better men than me and were willing to let the Burning Man organization work out their latest growing pains. And now that I've grown up a bit more since then, I see how childish I was at the time. So, Maid Marion, I apologize to you and everyone in your organization for being such a jerk. Hopefully I'll make it back to the playa again one day where I can apologize in person. As you may have guessed, my experience at the Burns that I did attend are now among the most cherished memories of my life. So, I hope that all of our fellow saloners have the opportunity to walk on the playa at Black Rock City themselves one day. At least once in your life, you owe it to yourself to stretch way beyond your normal limits and figure out a way to get to a burn. As you may have noticed, I'm recording this podcast on February 17th, 2015. Tomorrow, tickets go on sale for the 2015 burn, which takes place from August 30th through September 7th. Now, the next thing that you should do when you get to the end of this podcast is go to the web and surf on over to the Burning Man site which you will find at www.burningman.org. And even if you aren't going to the burn this year, I highly recommend that you check out their newly designed website where you can learn about upcoming Burning Man events in Austin, Los Angeles, South Africa, and Israel, in addition to the main event at Black Rock City. I've already begun hearing from fellow saloners who tell me that they are thinking about going to the burn this year. Unfortunately, thinking isn't going to get you there. Doing is what's required. And the very first thing that you need to do is to get your ticket. Do it now. Don't wait. It's been my experience that once you have your ticket, the spirit of the event takes over. And from then on until you roll onto the playa in August, most of your thoughts and free times are going to have a Burning Man flavor. It's a new way of life that you're going to experience in the playa, and I know what I'm talking about. When I first arrived at Black Rock City in August of 2002 for my first burn, I had just completed 60 years of being called Larry. By the time that I left the playa a week later, I had changed my name to Lorenzo, and my life has been a grand adventure ever since. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.